Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, should California rebuild every town after wildfire? That's the question Erica D. Smith and Anita Chabrier explore in their new series for the Los Angeles Times called Rebuild, Reburn. For as long as anyone can remember, California has rallied around people who've lost their livelihoods to disasters, especially to wildfires, they write. But what if the overlapping issues of climate change, housing and affordability mean we can't do that anymore? We'll talk to Smith and Chabrier about what they learned from time spent with residents of Greenville, which burned last year in the Dixie Fire. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Greenville, the historic gold rush town north of Lake Tahoe that was destroyed by the Dixie Fire last summer, is where L.A. Times columnists Erica D. Smith and Anita Chabrier focused their attention for their investigative series called Rebuild, Reburn. It asks the hard question of whether it makes sense for California to rebuild towns after a devastating wildfire— when climate change means the risk is high that they will burn again. Erica D. Smith is Metro columnist for The Times. Erica, thanks so much for coming back on Forum. Thanks for having me on. And also, Anita Chabrier is LA Times California columnist. Anita Chabrier, really glad to have you on as well. Thanks so much. We enjoy being here. So, Erica, let me start with you. What was Greenville like before last year's Dixie Fire? You know, so it was, a, as you said, a small town. Um, it rough, had about roughly 800 people before the Dixie Fire came through last summer. Um, you know, from everything that people have told us, it was, you know, your quintessential Northern California gold rush town, very close-knit, tight-knit. Everybody knows everybody. You know, people don't really lock their their car doors or their, you know, their, their house doors uh, when they go to sleep at night. Um, people rely on each other. Um, very rural. Um, it takes a while to get there from, you know, from Sacramento or from, from Lake Tahoe. Um, but, you know, full of people that really, you know, cared about each other. And so they were very devastated, obviously, when the, when the fire came through last summer. Yeah, because what did it look like, Erica, when you were both there in July? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the street, it, I hate to say it, but it looks kind of like a moonscape. I mean, so much of that town was destroyed by the fire. There's only a, like a handful of residents left um, intact, um, a, a resort, uh, that kind of has some dirty dancing vibes as both Anita and I put it, uh, that miraculously, uh, survived, uh, a school as well, which a lot of community meetings are now held a gas station, a dollar general, but that's about it. I mean, it's, you know, the, the landscape around it, it's still pretty charred. Um, but you know, some of the greenery has started to come back, not so much the trees, but there have been other, uh, types of plant species that have kind of come in in between, including uh, when we first went up there, a number of poppies, which was actually really beautiful. But wow. it's definitely a, a town that's been transformed uh, by the landscape. Yeah. The Anita, what were your impressions when you uh, when you came upon it? 
You know, to get there, the closest major, you wouldn't even call it a major town, the closest town is Quincy, which is a tiny mountain town to begin with. And then you you drive out of Quincy on these two lane mountain roads, and it's really about 30, 40 minutes up another mountain, up another hill to get to Greenville. And you can see what it was. And I think that's the heartbreak of it. You're driving up these winding roads along a really beautiful river, um, but the hillsides are barren. The hillsides are just these black skeletons of the trees for for miles and miles um, as you get up there. And, you know, it's pockets. Fire's so strange because it'll it'll just devastate one patch and then right next to it, it'll there'll be healthy trees. But as you come into Greenville, as Erica said, there's just almost nothing there. It's almost um, sadder that the school and the gas station survived in one sense. And, and I don't mean I'm sorry that they're there, but they're just surrounded by um, the remains of this town. And it's, it, you know, you can just feel the devastation when you pull in. So how many people plan to return and rebuild there, Erica? I think you said about 800 people called it home before the fire. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting question because the way that uh, the settlement for a lot of the funding is set up, um, it there's actually a perverse incentive or an incentive in the way to return. And so right now, best we can tell from the organizers of the recovery effort, about 300 people um, say they plan to return. That could be a little bit more, could be a little bit less. I think a lot of it depends on how long it would take to actually get money to rebuild um, and how much they would get. So but, but the interesting thing is in order to get any money at all, you do have to say you are going to rebuild. And so there is a question of whether or not that number is actually going to be smaller. So I guess it's one of those things that'll have to play out over time. But best number we have is about 300. So what would you say then, Anita, Anita is the state's position on rebuilding generally? You know, I think we have a muddled position. Mm-hmm. I, uh, in the first um, in the first wave of everything, it is human nature and state policy to come in with emergency aid and to, to help people as we absolutely should. And I think that to a large extent, Greenville has not um, really gotten too far past that emergency phase yet. You're still seeing, you know, there's still a couple people left in FEMA trailers, although those are going away and that's a point of contention. Um, there's still a lot of people in temporary housing and things like that. But um, in general, the infrastructure is where the state and the federal government plays the largest role in rebuilding. And you're seeing both state and federal come in with things like um, after the burn, they, they discovered that part of the downtown had contaminated soil that needed to be remediated before they could rebuild. So you're seeing the government come in with, I think it was $40 million to do that. You're seeing them come in with the infrastructure. But in terms of the actual rebuilds of the homes, that's really on the individuals and their insurance and their personal financial resources. Right, if they have it. For those, exactly. I know both of you talked with with people who want to come back. What are the kinds of reasons that they give, Anita? People love it there. You know, you have families that have been there for generations. Um, you know, we meet a lot of people who it's, we're talking to the grandmother, but her children have moved back and, and she has her grandchildren there. So there's there's generations of people who have called Greenville home. And for those who have a, sort of a shorter history there, there's just a deep love of the land and the lifestyle and its isolation. That's what they were seeking out. And then of course, there's the the indigenous population. There have been, the Maidu tribe has called the Greenville area home for centuries. 
Yeah, Erica, tell us what Shelby Lung told you, if I'm saying Shelby's name correctly, a firefighter mm-hmm. in Greenville. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways, he talked a lot about just growing up and hearing the stories of what the area was like, um, and not just Greenville, but the, you know, the surrounding Indian Valley as well. And, you know, his ancestors worked the land that he talked a lot about, um, trees that, you know, used to be there, you know, years and years ago, um, and how, you know, conifer trees over time have kind of overtaken them and talking about he talked about that in the way of talking about the way that land changes, it, whether it's by fire in the way that the Dixie fire has, or whether it's um, by other means by humans logging. Um, but I mean, I think he takes a longer term view as another number of the indigenous folks there do. Um, this is just kind of one more thing that's happened to the land, but they don't look at it as a reason to leave. Um, and some of them can't afford to leave even if they wanted to as right. well. Right. It sounds like, though, Erica, especially in the conversation that you recount with a resident of Greenville named Ken Donnell, that there is this sense that the state coming in to support infrastructure building, families being able to rebuild and so on, that that is not necessarily going to be sustainable as more and more towns go up in flames. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a differing level of opinion about that. I, I think there's definitely a fear of what you said, that um, that at some point um, the state and the federal government and others won't support the type of rebuilding efforts. Uh, Ken Donnell, who we interviewed, definitely feels that way or definitely fears that. I think others kind of take a more of a view of that government, you know, owes them uh, to, to be rebuilt um, and that, you know, it doesn't matter how much it, it costs, but this will happen. Um, and so I think there, I don't think there's a one singular view, but I do get a sense from, from so many of the people that we talk to that there is this sense that things are changing. I mean, there've been so many fires, um, you know, obviously there was the fire in paradise, the campfire a few years back that was devastating. And, you know, it, that's not extremely far from Greenville. People look at that as a neighboring fire. And so I think that the, the residents there and there in, in Greenville and surrounding Indian Valley and Plumas County, see these fires happening, they know that something is changing. They don't know what that's gonna look like, but they are very focused on bringing back what they had. Yeah. Um, when you say something is changing, is it also to some extent even Californians' support of rebuilding as the morally right thing to do? I, I mean, you have these lovely acknowledgments of the people who are often victimized by fire, many of whom are elderly and poor, you write, and don't deserve the misery and uncertainty of losing everything but the clothes on their their back. Do you see, Anita, any of that sense waning in terms of what we as, as all Californians should do in situations like this? I don't see that waning. I, I mean, obviously, if you see someone, um, be it a flood or a hurricane or a fire, who's in distress, I do think that, you know, thankfully, we have that moral sense that we need to help that person. And and we should. They're not, uh, not just because they're taxpaying citizens, but because they're humans. But I think that what drew Erica and I to write this column is what yes. that help looks like. Right now, we blindly are saying, we will help you to restore what you lost. And in doing that, we are actually putting these people back in harm's way. You're seeing people in California now who have been burned out of multiple fires because we keep helping them to go back into dangerous places. 
And the question I, I got asked so much, and I think Erica did too after this is, you know, well, why don't we just build fire safe houses? Why can't we invest in, in making these communities fire hardened? And the really big point that I hope that we got across was that climate change is making it so that fire resistance can only go so far. So you can build back with metal roofs. You can, you can have the defensive space. You can do all the right things. And if you are in a high fire risk zone, you are still in danger of being burned out, even with all the safeguards. And I think that's the conversation we're hoping that these columns start is where can we responsibly help people to live that they will not be in future high risk danger. There's danger everywhere, but high risk danger. We're talking with Anita Chabrier and Erica D. Smith, both columnists for the Los Angeles Times. Their new investigative series is called Rebuild, Reburn, and it's about whether we should continue to rebuild towns devastated by wildfire in areas of the state where they're likely to burn again. And we want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What do you think? Should we rebuild towns destroyed by wildfire that are in fire-prone areas? If you've lost your home in a wildfire, did you rebuild? Why or why not? Email your comments or questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Or call us, 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Susan Rogers engineered Prince's Purple Rain. and Most people would retire on that achievement alone. But she teaches at the Berklee College of Music in Boston and has written a book explaining and examining our musical profiles. We'll find out why you like the music you like. Today, we're talking with L.A. Times columnists Erica D. Smith and Anita Chabrier, about their series called Rebuild, Reburn. It's about whether we should continue to rebuild towns devastated by wildfire in areas of the state where they may burn again and are even likely to. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or email forum at kqed.org. 
Uh, Erica, you spoke with climate scientists, including UCLA's Daniel Swain. What are they saying about how different the calculation is now with our climate crisis? Well, I think the biggest takeaway from both Daniel and a number of the clients, climate scientists we spoke to is that things really have changed. And it's changed for a couple of reasons. Um, climate change obviously being one of them. The environment is getting hotter. It's getting drier, um, which is one of the reasons we're seeing these bigger catastrophic fires that are spread across so many so many acres uh, seemingly each summer and each fall. Um, the other aspect of that is that it, that's exacerbating the forests that we have that haven't that have been treated with fire suppression for so many decades and now we have this kind of buildup of fuels uh, that everybody debates about every year when there's a huge wildfire. But basically the two things together are, are creating these massive massive fires that are threatening, um, a lot of these small mountain towns like Greenville. And, you know, one of the things is, is that these are these are places that always had wildfire, right? I mean, it's Greenville itself has existed for, for decades. Um, it's burned down more than once decades ago. The difference is now these fires are much bigger. They're much hotter. They move a lot faster um, and they're harder to put out. Um, and that's because of climate change and because of the forest. And so the sense of, you know, we've always had fire, we can survive it. It's just another, you know, change is not necessarily what we're hearing from climate scientists. They're they're indicating that this is a far more severe situation than I think a lot of people realize. Hmm. Well, let me go to caller John in Berkeley. Hi, John. Uh, hello. Thank you for um, having me on the on the on the line, um, and thank you for the talking about this important topic. Um, my family. Um, actually had um, quite a few properties in Paradise, California, where the campfire was and lost mm. pretty much all of them. Um, my comment is um, that there's economic, the economic reason is probably the strongest reason why people are choosing rebuild. Um, and the, basically what happens is insurance companies will um, uh, give you more money if you end up rebuilding because the cost of rebuilding is so high, especially in areas that were devastated by fires because the contract labor is so expensive. So then, then they'll give you more money if you rebuild than if you don't rebuild. So if you don't rebuild, they, I, I don't know how they determine the amount of money that they give you, but it's significantly less, probably 30% less. Hmm. Well, John, thanks. So, and it echoes a sentiment that you were making earlier, Anita Shabri. And John, I'm sorry to hear about your family's losses as well in the campfire. But both you, Anita and Erica, were talking about how there's this incentive to to rebuild, which I think John is underscoring here. Yes. And first, John, I am so sorry for your loss. That's devastating for your family. And I think you raised just a key and critical point. One of the things that Erica and I talked about in our final column is the need to have uh, a comprehensive land use plan in California. And part of that needs to look at how we incentivize or disincentivize rebuilding. And you're absolutely right. Right now, the status quo uh, makes it very difficult for people to not rebuild if they want that if and they need that full insurance payout. That's something we could fix, right? The state could step in and say, we're going to ensure that you're made as whole as, as we can make you, as your insurance policy can make you. But we're, we're also going to incentivize you building someplace safer. Those are the kind, kinds of conversations we're hoping that these columns start, is looking at what the status quo does, how it puts people in danger, and how it harms us all in terms of safe, affordable housing in the future. So thank you, John, for bringing that up. But I guess this 
sort of strategic long-term plan, what does it say in terms of where people can go and afford to go? Um, and, and what does it say about sort of who gets to decide which towns meet criteria for rebuilding and, and which towns don't? Do you have any thoughts on that, Erica D. Smith? Yes. Um, I, I, you know, I think that's part of the question, right? I think that we should have as many voices in this planning as possible. Like, you know, we had a blue ribbon commission on cannabis. I mean, if we can do that, we can figure out where in the state is the safest place for people to live. And it can't just be wildfires either. It also has to be flooding and drought and taking into account what is risk and what does risk look like? What's acceptable risk? What's not acceptable risk? Um, where should we be building? Where should we not be building? Um, and, and also at the same time, encouraging cities to build more housing. I think part of this is an affordability question, right? I mean, how many people from LA or from the Bay Area are moving further and further out because they can't afford to live closer to the cities because we don't build enough housing in the cities? And so we have to also address many of these things, not just um, the idea of climate and building in the mountains, but how does, this, how does all of this intersect to affect us as residents? Let me go to caller Dave in, in South Humboldt County. Hi, Dave. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call, and I'd like to echo the previous caller's um, gratitude for addressing this crucial topic. Um, I've been working on wildfires since 1981. Uh, in the past few years, I've been working also as a consultant for defensible space and uh, structure hardening to resist ignition. And I agree with part of the premise of your guests and disagree uh, with some of the rest. Uh, what drives wildfire behavior is fuels, topography, and weather. Um, there are certain topographical features that will make a place more likely to burn more intensely. I agree that those should be uh, considered for not rebuilding in if a town uh, is in them or a subdivision or something like that. However, uh, I think there's a misunderstanding about hardening buildings to resist ignition um, that, you know, for instance, uh, one of your guests said something like, well, you know, you put a metal roof on, but climate change is happening. And uh, I don't agree with that. Uh, if the house doesn't want to ignite, the house doesn't want to ignite. Um, if you manage the vegetation and the human-derived fuels around the house, you will preclude a wall of flame arriving at the front door. So then your next um, biggest threat is from windborne embers landing in receptive places, vulnerable places. And the problem there is that there's so many different types of ways that a house could ignite from the embers. Uh, for instance, uh, in the wine country fires of 2017, around Calistoga, I saw homes with metal roofs and stucco walls, which are considered two of the best materials you could use for wildfire safety that burned. Well, one of them had juniper planted underneath the eaves. So they got two out of three, and the third one got them. Mm. So you have to look for these Achilles heels. And yeah. Understanding of that, and you marry that with adequate defensible space, then you can succeed in uh, preserving homes. So, and so Dave, you feel like those mitigation measures that you are laying out are are effective enough against the kinds of fires that we're seeing now in terms of the extremely hot, you know, fast moving, the kinds of things that we've been hearing climate scientists tell us has really changed the game. 
Okay. Absolutely. Well, and, thanks. Uh, yeah, last point? But that's okay. I'll move on from there. Okay. Well, Dave, thanks for sharing that and for giving us a sense of how effective that can be. I think, Anita, you talked with a Berkeley scientist as well who has been looking at just whether or not the kinds of advances that we can develop against wildfire are going to be effective. I did. And it really was a, an eye opener for me. That was Karen Chapel, And the she did a study for the Next 10 Institute about about these very things is what can we do to be safer? And Dave, you, you raised really good points. And um, I do believe that fire hardening absolutely makes a difference. And if you're going to live in these places, you have to fire harden and you have to get every point right. Um, and I, I want to make the point that Eric and I are not telling people where to live. People are going to have the right and should live wherever they want to live. What we're talking about is what is our collective responsibility for people who choose to live in high risk areas. And, you know, maybe that means living without insurance or, you know, uh, other things that you are taking for granted now. But I think what, what came out of how we should live, how sh we should rebuild with the, the next 10 study, they looked at three possibilities. Rebuilding exactly as things are now, you just put the town back where it was, which as you can imagine, was the least safe way to go about it. They looked at something that they called resilience nodes, which was kind of changing what the town looked like, keeping the housing closer together, creating den uh, defensible space around that, just trying to create a town that was more compact, but still in the wilderness. And that was sort of um, fire hardening done on steroids. And that had a, a much better chance of surviving fires. But as you can imagine, the safest option was a, a managed retreat, simply moving out of the very high risk areas and helping people to rebuild in, in areas that we no, aren't quite as risky. So those are really kind of the options that we just need to start talking about. None of them are right or wrong, but that's where the conversation is right now. Well, let me go to caller Shaban in Santa Rosa. Hi, Shaban. You're on. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Go right ahead. Um, so I lost my home in the Tubbs fire. Um, I live in Coffee Park and I rebuilt um, and just, I have just a couple comments. One of them is that um, because of our um, housing problems up here, I really did feel like some of it was a missed opportunity to make some real changes in the neighborhood that I live in. But I think that that comes up against the commodification of housing. Um, but also I have to say that I've been in my home, I think at that point for 27 years, and I could not I couldn't go shopping. I mean, it was so hard to make a simple decision about what to buy that ha being challenged with having to relocate my home of 27 years would have been, it was something I couldn't do. And I simply rebuilt in that same location because I could think of nothing else to do. Everything else seemed overwhelming. Hmm. Well, thank you for, for sharing your experience with us, Vaughn. And I'm really sorry that you lost your home in the Tubbs fire. Um, there are a couple of comments like this coming in, actually one specific to Santa Rosa, where Jennifer writes, it seems like it's easier to say people in small rural towns should leave when it is than it is to tell people in Santa Rosa that they should move. Santa Rosa has burned before. It burned this time, and it will burn again. Nobody told people in Santa Rosa not to rebuild. And Michael writes, would we rebuild San Francisco after an earthquake? What are the criteria for favoring one situation over another what do you think about this, Erica, in terms of this real concern of an urban bias against rural people? 
and rural yeah, communities. I mean, yeah. I, I got a number of those emails as well. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because again, as Anita said, we're not telling people that they should up and move and that they, they can't live where they want to live, but we are talking about what the public owes in terms of investment in rebuilding these places. And what was so interesting to me about Greenville, when we went up there, we didn't really know exactly what we were what, what to expect, but what was so fascinating is the people that are in charge of the recovery there seem to really kind of acknowledge that a that there wouldn't be this incentive that would be long-term to want to rebuild them. They were a town that before the fire um, happened was already shrinking. They had gone from, I think of a high around 2000 people at some point had been steadily shrinking to less than a thousand. And they didn't have much of an economy. Um, they, you know, they were, the poverty level was higher than California's average. Um, and so they looked for a way of not just rebuilding, but rebuilding with an economy to kind of show that they had a reason to exist because they knew at some point, whether it was Anita or I or state officials or somebody, but they were, somebody would ask, why are we spending this much money to rebuild this place that was already shrinking before it burnt down? And I think that when we're talking about public investment, and this is kind of where the financial side kind of, you know, veers from the moral side of things. I think the calculation is going to be about, you know, does this town, why does it exist? And I think the economy is part of it. Is that the morally right thing to do? Probably not to look at it in that way. But I do think that is a question that's going to come up in this calculation about land use, about which towns we rebuild, which towns we don't. I don't know if I necessarily have an opinion one way or the other, but I do know that towns and places like Santa Rosa that do exist, have an economy, have lots of people, are a lot easier to justify rebuilding than a place with 300 people that's you know an hour outside of a major town. Um, and I, so I don't know if that's an urban bias or a rural bias, but I think that's part of the calculation that, um, that we're looking at, unfortunately, as climate change makes uh, some of these fires and other catastrophes, disasters worse. Yeah. Well, Adita, I, I can appreciate also your point about the state having a statewide land use plan as well, the points both you and Erica are making. But you also found in your reporting that there's a really strong anti-government sentiment that prevails, especially in some of the rural areas where there are which are seeing a lot of fire. And so I imagine it might be difficult to swallow a big government plan about whether or not, you know, you should be allowed to do what you want to do in your town. You know, that is um, so very true. And and I respect and understand that when you, when you get into the North state, there is uh, a lot of flat out dislike for Sacramento politics and for urban politics. It's not a place where governor Newsom is a popular guy. It is, um, there is a lot of sense that they have been left behind by the rest of the state, that they're not valued by the rest of the state. And, you know, one thing I hear up there all the time is, you know, keep your money and keep your rules. That's sort of the sentiment up there, um, which, of course, becomes very problematic when there's a disaster and, and they do need the money. Um, and it's just it, it's a it's a difficult situation. Everyone I respect everyone's politics, but that is a very real sentiment up there. And you have almost felt like climate change has intensified some of the frustration at government and even been a hook, I think you've said, for extremists. Can you talk about that connection a little bit? Yes. And I'm not saying specifically Northern California. This is not me saying it. This is extremism experts literally across the globe. You are seeing 
extremists capitalize on climate change, climate change loss, and climate change migration. And so what's happening, every place that you see people losing uh, their lifestyle or their land based on floods or based on fire, or based on any of these things, you're seeing extremists, um, some very ugly fascist nationalist movements who are spreading ideas online, the same kinds of things you see in our general politics that are um, blaming immigrants, that are blaming you know, democracy basically for these problems. And it, these were prob that was probably the most controversial column that Erica and I wrote was really looking at the connection between climate change and extremism. But that, that connection is very real and something that I think we ignore at our own peril. What do you mean controversial, how? Well, you know, uh, anytime you bring up extremism in, in this political uh, atmosphere that we have in the U.S. right now, you're going to make a lot of people mad. They feel that you're calling them extremists. And, you know, I tried to be very clear um, in that column, and we tried to be very clear that we're not saying that disliking Newsom or disliking Democrats or disliking the government is in any way makes you an extremist. But the moments of vulnerability, like a fire, when you've lost everything, or when a government is telling you, you can't rebuild here, or we're not gonna help you rebuild here. Those are places where extremists move in, right? And they, they feed on outrage and loss. That's just the extremist playbook. And I think that as we see loss, as we see people in these terrible situations, we need to be aware that there are dark forces who would like to capitalize on that. The series is called Rebuild, Reburn from the L.A. Times. We're talking with columnists Erica D. Smith and Anita Chabrier, and we'll have more with them and with you after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Many small California towns that were devastated by recent wildfires are determined to rebuild, including Greenville, which is a community that Los Angeles Times columnists Erica D. Smith and Anita Chabrier focused on for their series called Rebuild, Reburn. But as climate change intensifies wildfires and, and political extremism, as we heard just before the break, the state is facing a dilemma as resources dwindle. And you, our listeners, are weighing, weighing in on what you think should be done, whether we should rebuild towns destroyed by a wildfire that are in fire-prone areas, if you've lost your home in wildfire, and whether or not you rebuilt. 
and why you did or, or why you didn't. You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or giving us a call now at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And let me go to caller Philip in Burlingame. Hi, Philip. Hi. Um, I have a friend whose sister lost her house, um, you know, in the fire and, you know, as a taxpayer, you know, I'm proud that FEMA can step in and help people. But I really have some concerns about building codes and about zoning. So, you know, if somebody's going to build, you know, in a fire zone, how about not a wood shake roof or a comp shingle roof, maybe a concrete roof? Um, you know, if they're going to be reimbursed, then they have to rebuild according to certain building codes so that they don't get flooded again or burned out again. Um, and this is something that could be done, you know, at, at the state level, county level, the federal level. FEMA could, you know, predicate funding on building to certain standards. And, you know, yet it's always local people arguing with people who have suffered tremendous loss. Mm. Well, Philip, thanks. Your thoughts, Erica, are what you discovered around our Building codes, our zoning, things like that with regard to whether or not it's making progress toward this bigger question as you see it in terms of you know what needs to be done? Yeah, I mean, building codes are a hot topic right now and not just in California, but you know, even in Florida after the, the hurricane there. Um, California has adopted stricter building codes for rebuilding properties, particularly in high-risk fire zones. Um, there's certain things about having you know houses so many feet apart um, using certain types of materials, um, you know, all of the idea towards improving safety. Again, a lot of that science is, you know, somewhat evolving still on what are the safest building practices. Um, and there's, you know, new ideas coming up all the time. I, I think the challenge is, is that, you know, a lot of people just can't afford to rebuild with these higher cost materials and do it in the way that, um, meet the state regulations. I mean, we have to remember that, you know, a lot of these, these towns that burn down are like Greenville. They're not, um, you know, wealthy at all. These are people that have lived in the same houses that have been there for years that are not safe at all on probably on street grids that were not designed for the sort of fires that we see today. And so there's a, there's a cost factor there that a lot of people understand the need to be safer, but also just gripe about the fact that they don't have the money to do it. And so sometimes as like an paradise after the campfire, the very nature of the towns actually change where the people who replace the people who used to live there are wealthier because they can, they're the ones who can afford to move back. So it's another challenge that we have to tackle. Well, Trish writes, because fighting fires and saving privately owned property is so resource intensive on every level, and because it is paid for by our taxes, if rebuilding in fire-prone areas is allowed, perhaps it should come with greatly strengthened building and fire codes, along with a required written commitment from the property owner to take full responsibility, financial and otherwise, in the event of a future fire. Caller Dave made a tremendous point that people tend not to recognize. A home is only as secure as its weakest point, whether from break-in, flood, earthquake, or fire. This is a discussion for the entire country, which is currently in our faces in Florida. We need to wake up and move forward in a sensible manner. Your reaction to that, Erica, it's sort of on point with what we were talking about as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely is in our, our face right now about what we, you know, how we build and where we build. But I think a lot of it comes back to understanding what the risk is. And I'm not sure 
if actually I would go out on a limb here and say that most people who live in high risk areas don't really know what the risk is. I mean, I think there's an understanding that if you live, you know, in a mountain where there's, you know, there's fire, there's warnings, there's fires nearby all the time that you're at risk for a fire, but understanding that you're at risk for a fire versus the idea that you're neighborhood may very well burn down in the next 10 years are two different things. And I think that as a state, we have to be more, be more urgent about making people understand the risks of where they live. And in some cases, and there's some arguments, some of the people we interviewed, some of the experts that we talked to, you know, discuss kind of with one of your callers just said about people who live in these properties taking on more risk. And again, that's a financial question because not everybody can afford to do that. And so what do we do with the people who do live in these high-risk areas and can't afford to live there? So, I mean, there are lots of questions that I think we need to be asking and answering. And I think that we're just now starting to get to that. But I think the faster we can do that, the better. Hmm. Let me go to caller Liz next in San Leandro. Hi, Liz. Hi. I think it was really important that you brought up extremist thought because uh, there's a lot of it throughout um, different areas. Um, For instance, there's an organization called State of Jefferson in the Lower Sierras, and they don't believe in paying taxes and they don't believe in government. So um, as you're talking about wildfires and preventing them and your homes and property and all this, there's a lot of misinformation. And I just want to thank you for bringing that up because it is part of this um it is part of this i mean people moving out into the woods um to and i know this from experience with my mom living in an area where the state of jefferson is has meetings and stuff like that and this is in california so i just wanted to bring that up and thank you for bringing uh that up because i think it is a part well liz thanks for the call and anita chabrier you did talk about the state of Jefferson specifically and the current of anti-government sentiment. Yes. And and thank you, Liz, for for saying that, because it is such a taboo topic. And I think it's important that we talk about it. And let me go next to caller David in Santa Rosa. Hi, David. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, Yes, I moved to Santa Rosa in 1987. And 4th of July of 88, uh, fireworks were still legal. And I watched uh, all afternoon the hill in the open space right behind my house burn. Um, And so I've been very aware of this fire issue for years. But uh, these these points of uh, one, two, three, there's a missing point here that uh, the problem isn't the fire. The the fire would uh, reduce the... Fuel in the forest uh, at no cost, and not the billions of dollars we're talking about trying to do that with man and with labor. Uh, the real solution is, and it's been hinted at it, at the building code of actually building houses that don't burn. And uh, our wooly codes so far have not been anywhere close to sufficient. And it's been documented in. Fountain Grove, that there were something like 350 homes that were built to the Wooly Code, and all but 16 of them burned. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I can say, though, that the technology exists in other parts of the world. Europe has been using autoclave aerated concrete, AAC, uh, since 1930. And this is a concrete that won't burn. It is insulation. It's 80% air, which means it, it does not have a high carbon footprint. And it um, 
we really need to go beyond the the level of changes. And this takes me, though, to the question is the problem is getting to a tipping point where this becomes affordable. You know, and I can take the analogy of electric cars. People think that electric cars are expensive. Well, we are now reaching the point where it's actually less expensive to own and operate an electric vehicle. And the same thing could happen with building. We could build fire, completely fire tolerant structures at less cost than this, what we're doing now. But we need to reach a tipping point with the tech. And it isn't inventing new technology like the electric vehicle. It is bringing the technology that the U.S. and Canada, who are so stuck on lumber, that we don't uh, develop these industries. Well, well, David, thanks for your point. And let me remind listeners that I'm talking with Erica D. Smith and Anita Chabrier about their investigative series for the L.A. Times called Rebuild, Reburn, about continuing to rebuild towns devastated by wildfire in areas where they are likely to burn again. And, Erica, can I ask you whether or not you see models of recognition that climate change is going to devastate and may continue to devastate already devastated areas, maybe along the coast or so on, that our models for figuring out a way to manage, find some some way to manage people's desires to live in the WUI, the wildland urban interface, as Dave was bringing up, um, or or finding alternatives. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that they're, you know, throughout the state and well, throughout the country as well. I mean, I think there's recognition of all of these things in various different forms. I mean, after Hurricane Sandy on the East Coast, there was, you know, several areas and towns that actually went into a full-on managed retreat and just moved inland when they had, you know, they used federal dollars to buy out their properties and, and bought houses elsewhere. Um, there have been cases along our coast where, you know, communities have, based, have embraced a managed retreat um, from the Pacific because of the sea level rise. Um, I, I think in places like Paradise, the way that they've built back, um, though I think a lot of experts would say it's still a very dangerous place to be building to begin with. Um, they have adopted different fire codes into building into their, their homes that are safer, I would imagine, than the ones that burned down um, in the campfire. So I think we see this happening in fits and starts. I think what Anita and I were so, you know, I think bothers us so much. And one of the reasons we wanted to write this series is because it is happening in fits and start. It's happening at kind of more of a grassroots level that people are thinking about this and doing it. They're not doing it with any direction from on high. And so you kind of get this chaotic public policy response to it as opposed to something that's far more orderly and I think can make far more difference in people's lives. Well, Kathy writes, after the Tubbs fire, not rebuilding was in fact seriously considered by the city of Santa Rosa and Sonoma County. Not so much the Coffee Park area, but certainly Fountain Grove. The moneyed interests won. And another listener writes, this issue is no different than people getting flooded out time and time again along the Mississippi or other flood-prone areas. Seems a little myopic to focus on a California-specific hazard. The feds have set the tone here. So, Anita, let me ask you, managed retreat, is how is that responded to or what is the reaction around the notion of managed retreat in some of the areas where you were reporting the the areas that were victimized by wildfire i mean it's wildly unpopular right uh, no one wants to leave their home a home that you know maybe their parents lived on uh the sense that i, I think erica brought up is 
that this, this is not um, an unmanageable situation. We just need to do more to manage the forests. So people do not want to leave where they're at and do not believe that is the solution by and large, even as they can see climate change happening and can acknowledge that the land is changing. But one point I did want to make that, you know, Kathy, as she writes in and the previous callers um, from Coffee Park have made, is that this is not just a conversation about rebuilding. It's a conversation about building. So if, if you had gone, I went to Coffee Park after the fire and I, I knew it before the fire. And it was, you know, it was part of Santa Rosa. It was just this sort of subdivision and, and you drive down a busy street and you turn and you're in this um, charming subdivision of, of houses that are right next to each other. And had I bought into that neighborhood 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it never would have occurred to me in my wildest dreams that this was at a high risk for a wildfire. You just thought you were in a Santa Rosa suburb. And I think that what I really want to drive home and why we're asking for a state land use policy and to start that conversation is because so many people do not understand the risk that they're in. They don't have to be off in a Greenville. There's so many places in the WUI and the WUI itself doesn't have to be that dangerous. We can live in the WUI, but within the WUI, there are places we should not be living. Super high risk fire zones where we're at this moment building new developments that if you drive into them, you're not gonna think they're a risk for fire because there are hundreds of homes being slapped up and you think, well, they wouldn't build here if it was gonna burn down. But California is allowing that. And one thing that I think is important is that our insurance commissioner, um, Commissioner Lara, is now forcing um, a new regulation where people will be given risk scores. So you'll have the actual number that the insurance company sees that explains how high of a risk your home is when you buy it. And that's the kind of thing that I think is so important is, is to really help people understand that you don't have to be off in the middle of nowhere to be at risk of fire in California. It can be a coffee park and you need to be aware of that. We're talking with the co-authors of the LA Times series, Rebuild, Reburn, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Kai tweets, I do find the rural delusion of self-sufficiency frustrating. The government is spending huge amounts of Money per person to allow people to choose this lifestyle to have roads, plumbing, sewage, electricity, law schools, and yes, fire protection. And Richard writes, simple solution for fire safety when rebuilding. Clear the forest for a half mile around the towns, leaving only um, very widely spaced trees like the Tahoe Forest used to be before fire suppression. And let me see if I can get caller Michelle on. This is Michelle in Oakland. Erica, hey girl, hey. Um, Hi. I I just wanted to um bring to first thank you guys for having this conversation. I think it is a very important conversation to have, um, as are all of the conversations on KQED. Um, but I think it's especially important because um, I think a lot of people are overlooking a very critical moment in the lives of everyone in California. And that is the, the the day that everyone woke up and the world was red. I don't know if people remember that day, but I remember it very vividly. Um, I wasn't sure if an asteroid was coming to destroy the world, and it was Armageddon. I wouldn't. I wasn't sure if it was, you know, the end of days. I had no idea what was going on until I later learned that 
the world looked the way that it did because of wildfires. I remember specifically I couldn't go outside and I couldn't breathe because my allergies were like my lungs felt like they were on fire. My eyes felt like they were on fire. I couldn't go to work. I mean, I, I woke up and I thought the world was ending. And I my question is not I don't have an answer as to should we rebuild. My question is, why would anyone want to rebuild knowing that that is the effect that it can have on so many people. Well, Michelle, when that fire, when I'm sorry, go ahead. No, well, you make an important point, and that point is, I think, at the heart of what Erica, you, and Anita are trying to get at, which is we are all affected and all are invested in seeing people be able to live really full quality lives. And in the face of climate change induced intense wildfires, what what kinds of conversations should we be having about that effect on us all? So no. yeah, Erica, go right ahead. No, I was going to say yes. Thank you, Michelle, for that. I, I agree. I mean, I think it's we have a tendency in the state to kind of look at it as Northern California, Southern California, rural and urban. But when it comes to climate, it doesn't know any boundaries. And we have to really treat this as a statewide issue. And so I hope we do that going forward. Erica D. Smith and Anita Chabrier, our LA Times columnists, check out their series, Rebuild, Reburn. Thank you both for talking with us today. Thank you for having Thanks us Thanks for having us. And thank you, listeners, for sharing your experiences and your perspectives on this. My thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.